The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. Well, for today's interview, we're very pleased to speak with Dr. Brian Conway. He's an infectious disease expert and the medical director of the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. They've been doing pop-up clinics in the downtown east side for many years, looking at hepatitis C and HIV. Now they're pivoting to COVID-19, and they have reopened their pop-up clinics at organizations around the neighborhood, looking at how COVID-19 may or may not have impacted the downtown east side compared to other places. And we asked him for some refreshers on exactly what we've learned and know so far about the coronavirus as it has spread across the world and across our province. And of course, yesterday was International Overdose Awareness Day, and we asked Dr. Conway about the devastating impacts and record high numbers of fatalities from illicit drugs and how COVID-19 measures may have exacerbated them. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Pulse, Dr. Conway. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm really curious about some of your research in the downtown east side around COVID, because as we've seen, there have been very, very few cases uh, in the neighborhood. Some of them appear to maybe come in from outside, perhaps from correctional institutions. But there was a great fear from the very beginning. This could be a catastrophe in the neighborhood. It hasn't been. Tell me about why you think that might be. Well, I think these are not individuals who travel a lot to areas where the COVID pandemic started in terms of going outside the country and then bringing it back. And uh, we, we otherwise, I think we just got a little bit lucky in terms of it not having penetrated into our downtown east side. There have been reports from other inner cities, such as Boston in the United States, where there were significant epidemics. Now, that being said, we are still not sure that a number of cases may not uh, may, they may have occurred anyway, uh, because uh, opioid withdrawal and its symptoms look a little bit like uh, COVID. And I think that we need to wait this out and have uh, proper antibody tests available that are accurate, that will help us definitively evaluate whether there was any penetration of COVID-19 into that neighborhood over the past several months. So before we move on, just because we have lots of listeners in the neighborhood and people who are or know drug users, can you kind of back say a little more about what symptoms of dope sickness might be similar to COVID and what people should do if they have them and they don't think it's from a, a withdrawal? Sure. So if people have muscle aches, have shakes, chills, Uh, might even be a little bit short of breath. I think all of these things would prompt individuals to think that they are withdrawing if they are active users and to seek out some uh, drugs to deal with these uh, symptoms rather than thinking of it as COVID and having to seek out a healthcare provider to assess this and get tested. Can fever also be part of a withdrawal symptom? Well, they would present mainly with shaking chills Mm. that could be associated or interpreted as fever. People who have fevers will often have shaking chills. So I think that's where the overlap occurs. One of the theories that, you know, I've seen bantered around a bit, because as you mentioned, there are some 
um, homeless communities in the states, which did have major outbreaks, and there is that big study from, I think, Boston from a shelter that had a significant outbreak. Is this potentially because of the amount of preparation and concern for the downtown east side to get all the organizations on board with, with measures to prevent it? I think the big difference between Canada and the United States is the presence of uncontrolled community-based spread that was present in the United States and the inability to test each and every individual who may have been infected and if a positive result is obtained to engage in proper contact tracing. I think one of the things that we did better than anyone else in Canada in general, British Columbia in particular, was to find these cases and to have the contact tracing in place so that even if there was community-based transmission, which we had to a very, very limited extent, if at all, we were able to limit the impact of each case. And that's an important feature in limiting spread into neighborhoods like Vancouver's inner city. However, you are researching this question about the downtown east side's seeming resistance to this. Uh, is Are there any areas you're pursuing? And tell me about your research. Is there a possibility this could be some other explanation? Well, prior to us having to live with the COVID pandemic, we had developed a system called community pop-up clinics where we go to specific neighborhood locations on the downtown east side and beyond that inner city residents would often utilize to get services, be it emergency lodging, food, access to other services, showers, laundry and the like. And we would have a medical clinic on the spot to try and create a re-engagement in necessary healthcare that was lacking for many of these individuals. This was obviously cut off with the COVID pandemic as all of these locations closed. As they have reopened over the past six weeks or so, we have started doing these pop-up clinics again to test individuals' knowledge about COVID, to make sure they understand what the symptoms of COVID are, how it is spread and how to seek care for it, if this is necessary, to fill in the parts of their care that had been interrupted as part of the shutdowns that were mandated by public health measures for the COVID pandemic. And also to try and set up a system where we will be able to provide influenza vaccination in a more broad and universal way when it becomes available in the fall, since that'll be an important part of the ongoing response to the COVID pandemic. And we'll also set up a structure whereby we could administer COVID vaccines to this very population when such vaccines become available. And the fact that their healthcare services got cut off has led to an unfortunate increase in the number of opioid-related deaths that have occurred in the past several months. We've had over 170 deaths on a monthly basis for May, June, and July, which sets a record for the opioid overdose pandemic that we have been facing, this public health emergency we've been facing for a little over four years. Truly heartbreaking. Yeah, it's hard. It, my heart, go we have had significantly more opioid overdose deaths than COVID related deaths. So I think this is something that we need to pay attention to going forward. And of course, those opioid related deaths are very clearly related to some aspect of the measures to combat or prevent COVID-19. So a bit of collateral damage in a sense. Absolutely. This is collateral damage. We have prevented these individuals from interacting with their healthcare providers in a way that they had enjoyed before the COVID pandemic, and that includes access to the pharmacies. 
We have prevented them from accessing emergency health care for complications of opioid use. And we've told people to personally and socially distance, which has increased the prevalence, the likelihood of individuals choosing to use alone, which is a very risky behavior in itself. So we need to design strategies. Early in the pandemic, I think on this show in particular, we had talked to the BCCSU and some folks at the Portland Hotel Society's clinic about any possible ways we could do a harm reduction kind of recommendations for COVID because obviously staying away from other people was going to be extremely dangerous. I think everyone saw this coming pretty early that that was that piece of advice would not apply to this neighborhood in the same way. No, you're quite right. And we need to design something COVID friendly that will restore the type of interactions that's useful and necessary to control the opioid pandemic. Hmm. Now, how much of a pivot is it for your pop-up clinics to get ready for a potential vaccine administration and to actually uh, help people with potential COVID uh, symptoms or concerns uh, from what you used to do, which is, I think, mostly HIV and Hep C, correct? Yes, and basically we're able to expand the program quite nicely because all of this fits in. We're able to do COVID antibody testing. We have to adapt the timing of the clinics because we have to correspond to the specific time frame where individuals are allowed to use the services, which in some cases is between seven and nine in the morning. We have to see less people, ensure that personal distancing is maintained, and we have to use protective equipment to make sure that we meet all public health guidelines. But we, to date, have been received with open arms. Hmm. I was uh, Our station is right beside the PHS clinic, right down on uh, Columbia Street near Hastings, and I know they have been operating throughout the clinic, and you can see how well prepared they are. They have someone greeting people at the uh, the kind of antechamber with the full plastic uh, covering and face mask and and uh, eye shield and inside, but with a lot of welcoming too. You can just sort of see people are treated with respect and you have to put a little extra compassion in the medical field when your face is covered completely. Well, I think that just being there is important, making sure that this partnership gets reestablished. In some cases, the partnership was not pursued as well as as it potentially could have been. And that's totally understandable because the COVID pandemic is generational. But we have to rebuild these bridges for the benefit of the population we choose to serve. When you mean partnership, you're kind of talking about the therapeutic alliance between a doctor and patient? To me, it's about engagement. It's about multidisciplinarity and it's about durability. So it's taking someone and making sure that they understand as we try to understand and act out that this is a partnership. This is something about an engagement between myself and the individual I'm serving. It is multidisciplinary. It's meeting all of their needs at the same time, and we have to be in it for the long run. And I think these are the features that characterize the most successful programs, including those of PHS and what we aspire to do on a daily basis. Hmm. How, how can people get connected to you? And is this for anybody with health concerns? Or is this uh, are people who potentially are concerned about COVID? Should they go somewhere else? Well, I think that it's uh, in ter- there are testing sites for COVID that are available through uh, the provincial authorities. And I think these need to be the main places to get tested for COVID. At our outreach events that are widely advertised and held once or twice a week on the downtown east side, uh, people can can walk in according to the rules and regulations of the host institution that limits access, limits the number of people. But I think we're slowly going to be building up to meet the need as broadly as we can. And again, 
respecting the principles of engagement, multidisciplinarity, and durability. Is there concern that people have not been potentially able to access the testing for COVID in the neighborhood? I mean, if you don't, if you aren't able to call 811, or if you can't get to the testing site down on 33rd, it makes it a bit difficult. You're absolutely right. I think this is a piece of our response that has not been up to the same level of excellence as other parts of the provincial response to uh, to COVID. And we need to discuss with the neighborhood a made in the downtown east side solution to this. They have opened a testing site now, I believe, on the downtown east side, and we'll have to see how well it gets used going forward. Interesting point there. Now, are we in the clear, or is there a concern that this second wave expected to come in the fall uh, could actually come back with a vengeance in the neighborhood? I think we're absolutely not in the clear. This is a very long-term pandemic. I think we will be where we are now, I would think, for another year or two. So we need to build the structures that are consistent with current public health regulations and make them as user-friendly as possible, particularly for individuals who are already vulnerable and suffering from a significant worsening of the opioid pandemic. There's also, I guess, a bit of the logical fallacy that we often fall into that because things have not been bad or as bad as they could have been so far, we might think that the measures we took were unnecessary, when in fact, it's quite the opposite. Oh, absolutely. We can see in the United States when public health regulations are ignored, you very quickly have uncontrolled community-based spread. And if that were ever to happen in British Columbia, that would be a complete disaster for the downtown east side. Hmm. Um, Could you tell me a bit about the research you're doing on COVID-19? I understand you're part of a pretty big international study of about uh, 6,000 patients who have tested positive, uh, potentially to find some kind of uh, treatment for the symptoms? Well, part of the reason you get sick from COVID-19 infection is not only the virus, but the body's reaction to it in trying to fight off the virus. This is called a cytokine storm, and it's a production by the body of a number of inflammatory mediators that are meant to control the virus, but that unwittingly cause a worsening of the illness. And we think that an intervention with a medication called colchicine may help reduce the cytokine storm and reduce the severity of disease in those who have become infected. And that's used for inflammatory illnesses already, like um, gout or Bassett's disease. Yeah, it's been used for gout quite productively for many years, and it was studied in the prevention of cardiac inflammation, an article that was published in a very prestigious journal, New England Journal of Medicine, last year. And it's on the basis of these findings that the COVID-based study was designed. Interestingly, uh, according to uh, uh, Wikipedia, colchicine is actually originally derived from the crocus and has been used for many millennia for inflammation and swelling. Ah, natural medicines are sometimes very useful. We should not ignore them. Don't try them at home, though. Don't just go eating crocuses or or anything like that. (laughs) Don't go eating crocuses, absolutely. That's a good point. And it is, of course, just a test, but it, it uh, so we don't know the results yet, but it's in Montreal. So with the University of Montreal, with the, with the Heart Institute in Montreal, I think, I think that, you know, the fact that the study has gone on for several months, and it's been reviewed independently 
by data safety monitoring boards, and to date it has been allowed to proceed. So although we are blinded to the results since half the individuals get colchicine and half get placebo, we um, th it is encouraging that the study's been allowed to continue up until now. Now, the infl inflammation aspect is pretty big. I think mid partway through the pandemic, we started to see cases, especially younger people who had massive inflammations and sort of uh, heart issues. Uh, uh, we actually had one on our show who, even after she was so-called recovered, was having some major uh, issues with her heart rate, with uh, the cytokine storm. Um, what have we learned that we didn't know at the start? Um, and what what is what should people know about the actual risks of the long-term impacts of this virus? Well, we're still learning since this pandemic is still young in its evolution. We know that older people are at higher risk of becoming severely ill or potentially dying from the infection. In younger people, we're seeing inflammatory consequences of the infection that may be debilitating and may be permanent. And in some cases, we're seeing prolonged disease that is affecting people's ability to breathe mainly in the long term. So we're still defining the spectrum of disease going forward. Um, and is there anything before we close that you'd like to remind the listeners in the downtown east side and downtown Vancouver in general about how we prevent this most effectively based on what we've learned? This disease spreads indoors in individuals who are very close to each other for an extended period of time, 15 minutes or more. If you can design your life however precarious or vulnerable it is to avoid these kinds of situations, this is going to be the most important part of responding to the COVID pandemic. And we understand that the measures that we put in place, we as healthcare providers, public health, the public health officials and others, have led to an increase in the opioid-related mortality. Our condolences go out to the individuals and their families who have been affected. And we are working very hard to try and find a solution that will help keep the rate of COVID low and address this worsening of the pandemic as soon as we can. I guess the, the message of keep, keep two meters distance, don't be indoors for 15 minutes, but also don't use alone if you're going to use. And if you're going to use, absolutely, thank you for bringing that up and reminding me of the most important message that relates to the opioid pandemic. Most people who die are those, are, are, have used alone. So please use with a buddy. Hmm. Thank you so much, Dr. Conway. Great to talk to you. And I look forward to seeing the results of your research. And let's hope that the second wave passes us by or, or at least is contained. Let's go out there and be safe. Thank you so much. Take good care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. And that was Dr. Brian Conway. He's an infectious disease specialist and medical director of the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. You can find out about their research on the downtown east side and COVID-19 or how to connect to them if you are COVID positive tested and want to be part of their antibody study. You can go to vidc.ca or email them info at vidc.ca phone 604-642-6429. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. <laughs>